Bolas, welcome. This is Josh Dippold of Integrating Presence, and today I've got Ajahn Pudinamo with me. Ajahn, how's it going today? Oh, it's going good. Cool. So usually I, I toss it back to the guest uh, to at, do an introduction, but if the listeners will bear with me here a little bit, I'd like to pay some respects. Giving tribute to Ajahn Pudadamo, we haven't met in, in real life, but the, the Dhamma talks I've listened to him, he, he seems, to, at least for me, has a knack for taking these extensive, complex, profound teachings and putting them into really clear and powerful, understandable and relatable ways, and all without dumbing anything down. But today, I want to speak with him about the, a book he's known for called The Buddhist Cosmos, a comprehensive survey of the early Buddhist worldview, according to Theravada uh, sources. The disclaimer here is I haven't read the entire book. Uh, I have listened to the 10-part series he did with Ajahn Sona about this. I've met the, the book cover designer, Tana Basaro. I appreciate him. I also wanted to just thank uh, Venerables Chittadamo and previously Anagarka Martin, now Venerable Carunio, spending extensive hours with me at Amravati talking about things like this and coming up with some questions too. I have questions grouped mainly in the structure and background and then access into these 31 realms. But before we get started in this, let's lay some ground rules here because there are certain things that can be said with the laity and certain things that can't. I know that the main one is monastics aren't allowed to publicly talk about attainments. But what other ground rules should we lay before jumping in here? Um, I think that's really basically mm-hmm. it. I mean, we don't mm-hmm. really have secret teachings in Theravada. Everything is on the table. There is a Vinaya rule against monks uh, speaking about their own uh, higher experiences. So that's not allowed. We can talk about this in generalities, though, right? And, yes. Uh, yes. No, no okay. restriction at all. And maybe how lay practitioners might be involved with some of this. So let's start off here without rehashing too much of the places you've spoke about this before, but we're going to have to do some. So the definitions, you know, in Buddhist cosmology, if I'm getting this right, there's something called a world, a world system, and then there's realms, and then there's cycles too. What needs to be kind of laid in the groundwork for people to understand this and kind of our conversation to get in here? Yeah, it can get very complex, and there's, there's quite a number of layers to it. I I uh, arranged my book in, in sections space, time, and beings to try and separating uh, out these different um, different levels. In terms of space, the fundamental unit in the uh, ancient Indian cosmology, which was adopted by the Buddhists, is the unit called the Chakavala, which uh, is, is uh, generally translated world system, and I've used that translation myself. Uh, the Chakavala, I've called it the functional but not the structural equivalent of a solar system. The it, it's not a it's not a tall like a, our modern understanding of a solar system because the sun is not at the center. What's at the center is this enormous mountain, Mount Sinaru uh, in Pali. Uh, many people will be more familiar with the Sanskrit name Sumeru, and this by far dominates the whole system. 
it's 84,000 yojanas high, which if you convert that to modern measurements, it's a, it's a distance greater than the distance, as we understand it, of the Earth to the moon. So this is a very massive body. And the land that humans live on is a, is a relatively small island called Jampudipa, way, way off in the edge of the system. So we're, we're not anywhere near the center of, of, of existence. And these uh, Chakawalas are infinite in number. Now, this is not the only world system. They're infinite in number, and they're conceived of as being spread out on a plane, a two-dimensional grid of an infinite number of Chakawalas. It's it's quite different from a um, solar system also in that I, there is no sense anywhere that uh, the stars were identified as being other world systems. So it, it's, a, it's an entirely different uh, physical universe. In terms of time, time is measured in uh, kappas, Sanskrit kalpa. A kappa is a very long period of time, immensely long, uh, unbelievably long, that is the lifespan of a chakavala. A world system persists for one kappa and then it's destroyed. Because there's no there's no permanence in, in this universe. But the um the world systems persist for this very, very long time. Then in terms of different realms, the realms of beings, uh there are different classes of beings. Um there are lower realms, hell realms, ghost realm, and animal realm. Then there's the human realm, and then there's which we could say is figuratively in the middle. And then there are the higher realms that are divided into devas and brahmas. And then there are some other special categories like the formless realms and the pure abodes and so on. Uh, the, the realms of the devas are conceived as being in space, the, the first two, there's six realms of Dewas. The first two are on Mount Sinaru. The first realm, the realm of the four great kings, is halfway up the slope. Then the realm of the 33, the Tawatinksa realm, is at the summit. And then the, the remaining four realms are in space, not connected to the earth. And then the, the Brahma worlds are infinitely far away. You mentioned a 2D representation. Is that just for understanding of this? And then before I jump in here and ask about how this might relate, how the Buddhist cosmos might relate maybe to modern day physics, understanding of the cosmos and other different traditions, especially maybe esoteric and occult traditions, if that seems appropriate to talk about. The Buddhist cosmology can be kind of interpreted in many ways. I know some people take it on a purely psychological level, all the way through to the literal level. But I just wanted to kind of give a, another thing here for those people who dismiss it uh, immediately as imagination. I just want to 
mention that or invite people to keep an open mind about this until they can completely understand imagination themselves, you know, until they know exactly how the imagination works, works all the nuts and bolts, the ins and outs of it, and can tell precisely all these little mechanisms of imagination. What can be spoke to about how to take this, um, how to interpret this on all the different levels, and then also comparisons to other cosmologies? Okay, well, that, well that's a broad question. Um, yeah. I'll start with, you know, how to interpret it. Uh, on the one hand, it's impossible to uh, really take it absolutely literally. I mean, you won't, well, I like to say you'll never find Mount Sinaru on Google Maps. You know, it's not, uh, it's, it's not possible for us any longer to, to take this literally. Um, but also, I'm, I don't like the psychological interpretation. I think it's, that that's dismissive. <clears throat> and, you know, if there is a correlation between the cosmology and, and the psychology, I think the, um, it really should be understood the other way around, that our uh, microcosmic human uh, psyche is a reflection of the greater cosmos uh, rather than the other way around. I like to interpret it uh, in, a, I call it a mythological manner. You know, it represents a kind of truth that isn't you know, nuts and bolts literal, but there's a there are deep truths hidden in there. And there, there may be ways, and I mentioned this in the afterword of my book, that there may be ways that someone's creative to try and incorporate it into a modern understanding of physics because there are so many open holes in our understanding of the universe, things like dark matter, um, <clears throat> things like, other dimensions, which string theory says there's 18, if there's any validity to string theory. Um, so, I mean, there is room for it, but I, I'm not, I don't really like going in that direction. Um, I prefer to take it on its own, own, uh, its own standing. <clears throat> I think when we're studying or reading about um, ancient cosmology, whether it's Buddhist, the Buddhist cosmology I've studied and written about, or whether it's some other ancient system. I think we, to really understand it, we need to try and put ourselves in the imaginative space of the people who lived at that time and took it seriously. You know, instead of being, you know, sitting on our high perch as moderns and being judgmental about the, about the past. And this is a very very deep and um, detailed and well thought out system, and it, it, it it's well worth the intellectual effort of trying to understand it in its own terms. Uh, and it begs okay. the question too: Well, how, where all this come from? The origins of things like this, you know, some people will might say, well, they needed to invent this to, I don't know, fulfill certain gaps in their understanding but then there's things that line up amongst other different religions and traditions also there was reminds me of i think it's called square land uh, a book mm. or like an um 
intellectual exercise where these 2D beings, uh, even though, yeah, they're, they're viewing like a 3D universe, they could only see it as 2D, right? So, th- yeah. so then if we project this into higher dimensions, if we're in a, like a 3D body and able to partly perceive higher dimensions, then maybe what we're in seeing, we're filling in the gaps in a 3D version, since we don't maybe have a 4D body, or I, I don't know how to explain this. The metaphor, I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling around in the metaphor, but I think maybe you know what I mean and, and maybe how to apply this. Yeah, I do. The book you're referring to is Flatland. I, I recall that reading it many years ago. And, you know, that that is one of the possibilities if that Mount Sinaru might exist in a fourth dimension and we would we would not know it or see it. But with no way of knowing that. And I don't think we, you know, we need to, to put too much too much emphasis on that. But the the more general point that comes from that is that uh, we should have some humility in that our, our perception and our understanding is incomplete. We're, we only have a, you know, we're, we're, for example, our perception of of vision, we, we see a narrow band of the electromagnetic spectrum that we call visible light, but all around us there's, you know, many other frequencies. That that are physically the same, except the frequency is different, and we just don't perceive that. And where where does it come from? Uh, it wasn't invented all at once. Like somebody didn't just sit down and invent it. This is something that's the roots of it go way way back in time. The before the Buddhists, there were the 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 Vedic religion that had a not identical, but very similar map of the universe. We see parallels spread around Eurasia. There's very strong parallels in Greek mythology and Norse mythology. These these uh, uh, these things all come from a very, uh, I, I believe, from one very ancient root, and then they were elaborated in different directions. You want to? Do we want to discuss that ancient root a little bit, as far as an or- origin, or is there anything? Is it just another kind of mythological story, or is there anything to speak to that? Well, there's a there's a, a couple of I would say two different kind of aspects to this. One is the very general, which could even say you know global. There are certain features like um, uh, nagas, the great serpent beings. They're they're found all over the world, and also uh, um, little spirits that live in the forest. And we, uh, the Native Americans here have you know the little people, and the uh, in Europe they have the elves and pixies and so on. You know, in, in the um, Indian version, it was Buma Dewas, Earth Dewas, Earthly Dewas. So that there's probably some realities of, of some kind that are being picked up around the world. But there's also some very close parallels in the stories in a more limited geographical range <clears throat> that I think goes back to the uh, very early uh, uh, peoples that are called the Aryans that spread into India 
and Persia and Europe. And the particular level that represents their mythology is the um, the Tawatinksa heaven, the heaven of the 33. Uh, they're constantly at war with the Asuras, the, the demonic uh, beings that live at the bottom of Mount Sinaru. Very much like the the um, Greek gods were at war with the Titans and the Norse gods were at war with the frost giants. And you can find a lot of parallels in that level. I think there was an old mythology about some war between the gods that got spread around from uh, these, these um, people that uh, uh, ranged over a huge swath of, of Europe and Asia in, in about the second millennium BC. Yes, these commonalities are definitely very interesting, and there's been so many different reports of, let's just, for lack of a simplification, fairy beings type of uh, beings, and then also the, the Nagas, yes, the, the serpent-like beings. They're time and time again throughout a lot of different cultures. The other thing here, as far as the realms and the overlaps and separations between these when we talk about realms, how do they say what separates one from the other? Is there is it, is it a physical structure, or how do we view this? And then, and then the jhana correlations too. Mm-hmm. Don't some say that certain jhanas are are needed or required to access certain realms? And then where is kind of the division between these in the crossover? Are there there barriers? The last thing I'll tack on here with this is if I'm getting this right towards the 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 Buddhist Parinibbana, uh, he went all the way up through the form, the highest formless, all the way back down. Is that right? Came out of jhana and then went back to fourth jhana again, and then there was Parinibbana. And, and, and yeah. if this relates to, or in what's your take on on that? Okay, well there there is um, an equivalency that's established and in, in elaborated in the Abhidhamma texts between states of consciousness and states of being, that the, the uh, Brahma worlds can be, this system of the Brahma worlds can be simplified into the four levels of the Brahma worlds that are equivalent to the four jhanas. And the, the consciousness of the Brahma beings is equivalent to that of a meditator in jhana. Uh, so one of the um, <clears throat> one of the ways this is seen is that the first jhana still has thought formation. Vitaka vichara are still present, so there's still thought formation, and that ceases after first jhana. So the first Brahma world is the only one where we have, uh, in the texts, we have stories about the Brahmas interacting and um, we have some named individuals. We have a more full picture of that realm. That's because in the higher Brahma worlds, they have no thought formation, so they don't really have speech and they they really don't do anything. They're just blissed out all the time. So uh, there's equivalence there between the first jhana and the first Brahma world. Those 
seen as playing out um, on the level of their consciousness. Uh, this also applies to the destruction of the world at the end of a kappa, because there are four levels of destruction. There's the the most common one is destruction by fire, and that reaches as high as the first Brahma world. And the second level of destruction that occurs more rarely is destruction by water, which reaches as high as the second Brahma world. Then there's a destruction by wind that is only occurs once every 64 times, and that reaches as high as the third Brahma world. And these are related in some ancient texts to the Brahm, to the jhana factors, that fire is like thought formation. Uh, because it's consuming and burning and so on, you can see a, a parallelism. And water is related to rapture or piti, and wind is the breath, and the breath is supposed to cease at fourth jhana. Well, so that they they made a you know parallelism on several from several different angles between the jhanas and the Brahma worlds. And yes, you do need to uh, to be reborn into a Brahma world. You need to have uh, some level of mastery of that jhana. We'll pick back up on the Buddhist parinibbana if you'd like. It leads me into these destruction of cycles. What determines whether it will be ended in fire, you know, water or air as well? And then, just as a, maybe an example question, if the cycle is ended by air all the way to the third Brahma realm, I guess the next birth of the beings, what happens to, what is said to happen to them during the, during that time period? Let's just say for an example, a rare destruction by, by uh, wind. Yeah. Uh, well, what um, determines it is, a, is a fixed cycle. There's a, a, a cycle that, um, encompasses 64 kappas. There are seven destructions by fire, then one by water, and this repeats uh, eight times, except the very last time and, uh, wind is replaced by water. So it's just a fixed mathematical cycle. And each one also, uh, uh, we've been speaking about, like we'd say, the vertical destruction, but the um, there's also a, a broader um, horizontal destruction with the, each each subsequent um, kind of destruction. It takes out more world systems horizontally. And what happens to the beings? They're, uh, they're reborn in, what's, in, in whatever's left, which in the case of the destruction by wind, the only place left is the fourth Brahma world. So that becomes, you know, overpopulated with all these beings and then the force of their karma because they they um they need to to be reborn out of that realm they they, they end up the force of their karma creates the 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 lower levels subsequently you know and they and they fall down because they don't really have the karmic conditions to remain in that high state so they, they kind of tumble down into the lower realms, populate the lower realms, and a new world is created. 
So this cycle is said to be prophesized to end in fire, right? And then where are we on that yes. chain in that math mathematical chain? Is it said? Oh well, uh, we we don't know that. It's it's only said that this this is a a fire cycle, but it, we don't know if that you know it's the last one in the series or what. In any case, we're uh, if we were to take a uh, direct understanding of the um, of the texts, then we're a long, long way from the end of the world. It's not it's nothing that we need to be immediately concerned about. These phases of a universe, if if I'm getting this right, there's a different phase of a universe's is it like you're saying the the beings, the force of their karma will actually create that. And is it a parallel to phenomena, the the arising, the sustaining, the passing away, and then maybe a period where there is no existence and so yes. do you know what i'm talking about here yeah yeah there's mm-hmm. four like the, the a world system goes through this four stage kind of four beats of existence beginning with an empty space there's nothing there's nothingness you know and then um from the the force of the karma of previous beings there's what's called the error of unfolding when the uh, the new world system comes into being and is formed. Then there's the uh, the phase of existence, where it's kind of more or less stable in existence. And then there's a phase of destruction. It doesn't happen all at once. It's a gradual process, destruction of the world system. There's also cycles within cycles within the... Um, Within one world system, in the phase of, of existence, there are periods of rise and fall of, of humanity. And that humanity, you know, beings in the human level, they go from a kind of animal-like state to a god-like state, and then back again, up and down, 18 times before the end of the world. And it, it's one of the ways this is measured is by lifespan. At the peak, uh, human beings have lifespan that's, um, can't remember exactly the number, but it's more than 10,000 years, like very, very long lifespan. Then at the, the bottom, the lifespan declines to 10 years and they revert to a kind of animal existence. Is there any kind of consensus Um maybe publicly about where we might be along those lines. Yeah, or, we're on the we're on a, the downslope. And there's a tradition, I think it's comes out of Burma. There's a tradition that the lifespan declines in in this period the lifespan is declining by one year a century. We see in in numerous References in 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 the Pali texts about uh, when they talk about human lifespan, they always talk about it in terms of being a hundred years long. And nowadays, we consider you know eighty years to be a kind of normal lifespan. So there's been a de- uh, if that's to be taken literally, then the, yeah, this this is maybe where they get those numbers. I would also mention that. We see in a lot of ancient sources the idea of human beings living very, very long lifespans. See that in the in the uh, in the Bible, we have the early patriarchs living hundreds and hundreds of years. We see that in the Babylonian king lists and the Egyptian, the first 
dynasties of the Egyptians that the the modern modern interpretation generally is that they were legendary, but they're given lifespans in the hundreds of years as well. Let's uh, toss in some other signs of the times, I guess. Isn't there something where when the Dhamma dies out, signs when the Dhamma is supposed to die out, some of these, isn't it a lack of um, maybe concentration practices or samatha practices? I'm I'm sure you know a few of these. Oh, I'm not sure, but I, I imagine you know a few of these. And then I also heard reports now, though, that there's a few monastics in Burma who can recite the entire Pali canon by from memory and so yeah. i guess you can speak to this well, what i'm most familiar with from the text in terms of decline of dhamma is in terms of the the sangha the the uh, monastic order will gradually gradually decline and the, the monks will cease keeping the rules and they'll live like laymen and there's one text that says you know at the very end of the very end of that um, that process, the only thing that distinguishes them as monks is that they'll wear a piece of orange cloth, uh, 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 like a sash, and that they'll but they'll be carrying on with farming and hunting and marrying and just and so on. And then one day they'll say, "What are we wearing this orange cloth for?" They'll totally forgotten what it means and they'll just throw it away. And that's the final, absolute end of the the Buddha cycle. That's, the, that's another kind of cycle is that the Buddha comes into the world and gives his teaching and establishes a Dhamma and a Sangha and that persists for some period of time and then it declines and disappears. And then there's a period with uh, there's no Buddha teaching remembered and then a new Buddha can arise. So that Open some chicken or egg questions, right? You know, I, I imagine there's some people that want to get on with the next Buddha, so we can benefit from that. I don't, I don't know. But then, then it's just like weighed with, well, you know, what do you, what do we do in the meantime? You know, we we want the benefit from the previous Buddha's teaching in the meantime. But I think the the obvious thing here is the balance that things are just going to kind of run their course, and we do what what we can wherever we're at along our birth to benefit from wherever we're at. I don't know. It's my statement's kind of vague there, but maybe you know what I'm, I'm getting at here. I don't, I don't know. Yes. That was while we're living under the dispensation of a, of a Buddha, which we are, we still have the memory of Siddhartha Gautam as existent in the world. You know, we should, we should cherish that and try and preserve that and keep it going as long as possible because when that's gone, it's not like the next Buddha comes right away. There's a long dark age before the next Buddha appears. So I told uh, Anagarka Martin at the time I would ask about uh, which realms include formless, I'm sorry, spontaneous birth. All the different ones, I guess we could just list them here. And then I guess we can um, mention maybe the other, as a technical note, the other types of birth, what are um, moisture-born and egg-born, right? And then womb-born. There's four kinds of birth that are Mm -hmm. recognized. Moisture-born, egg-born, womb-born, and spontaneous birth. Spontaneous birth applies to uh, all the devas and brahmas, and and some of the lower realms, like the hell the hell realms, and 
what it means. And this can be confusing because uh, <clears throat> some people who might be familiar with pre-modern European biology, that term was used to refer to how they thought uh, flies arose in rotten meat, that they were spontaneously kind of developed out of the meat. But that's not what's meant here. It's, it's general, mostly the higher realms that have, the being just appears. So when a day was born into that realm, they don't go through a childhood and, uh, and there's no sexual reproduction. Although the, in the Dewa realms, there's sex, there's sexual uh, relations. There's, it's just for pleasure only. There's no birth that way. They, they just appear fully formed as, as adults. And because that it's so so um, non-traumatic and, and immediate, they generally retain a memory of their past life, their la their one immediately preceding lifetime. Whereas as humans, we go through we're in in the categorical womb birth that applies to most of the like the mammals and and some of the other beings, some of the um, lowest very lowest level of dewas and uh, other animals, you know, that, that they were also womb born. It's a very traumatic process, you know, going being slow gestation for, for nine months and then born as an infant, helpless infant. So we lose our memory of our past life. Egg born is very similar. That applies to, you know, all the creatures that are born out of eggs. That's you know, most of the rest of the animal world other than mammals, as well as uh, nagas and, and some other beings. And then the last category is moisture born, which is the same as what the pre-modern Europeans called spontaneous birth. Um, they didn't uh, understand about creatures like maggots arising from eggs that were laid in rotten meat and other things that they thought that they just were generated somehow by the decay of the the substance. Now, science doesn't really understand the moisture born, right? Either, or I mean, because well, we well, don't recognize it mm -hmm. anymore. That was like pre-modern Europe. That was the accepted category. We no longer, because we know now there's microscopic eggs that cause it. I see. And so these, they would be those type of microscopic egg beings that would be considered uh, waterborne and are moisture born. And there's really no other class of beings or. Uh, it's only, mm -hmm. Yeah, it only mm -hmm. applies to these kind of very, yeah. very low level animal beings mm -hmm. like maggots. And things. I see. Yes. I get it. Cause I, when I'm picturing now is like a dried up creek bed and how with a heavy rain if maybe a little microscopic yeah it, yeah will then take birth but just for technicality here what are the hell realms then of the uh, do you do you remember from memory which which categories of the other um, lower realms uh, are, uh, include spontaneous birth well they're all pretty much spontaneous birth all the, the hell realms because nobody's really born in there you're you're reborn there from being a human or, or other other level that that lives very unskillfully and then you reborn in, in a state of great suffering hello i wonder if there was ever any time too that um there was spontaneous birth in the human realm if there's any recorded history of that being a possibility 
No, uh, the only exceptions are kind of uh, legendary ones, and I'm actually not. Uh, I don't think there's any in the Theravada tradition, but I know in Tibetan Buddhism, they you know Padmasambhava was supposed to be spontaneously born, just appearing on a. On a this his name means the lotus born one. He just appeared floating on a lotus in the middle of a lake. No, um, I'm not. Uh, the, nothing comes to mind in, ter, in the Theravada of a any kind of similar, uh, similar thing. Okay, so the other thing I wanted to ask is about Nama Rupa in the formless realm. So, if Nama Rupa, right? Some people translate it as name and form or uh, materiality, mentality. And so yeah. it, it, what kind of materiality, I guess, part of it could be in, in a formless realm and still doesn't the 12 links of dependent origination apply to the formless realms too? Uh, I was wondering about this. There is no rupa in the, in the formless realm. They're, they're also called um, four aggregate beings. The rest of the, the universe are five aggregate beings because we have body and the four mental aggregates. They don't have body at all. There's no materiality there at all. Dependent origination, the 12 nadanas of dependent origination, are meant to, to be specifically applied to the human experience, although they can be generalized to other, other levels. So that it, it wouldn't apply directly to um, formless realms. They would have to be considerably reinterpreted. Nama Rupa doesn't uh, doesn't apply there at all. There's no Rupa. That's that's a very clear, uh, easy explanation for that. Yes. Okay. So now, overall, the structural tr changes in the realms. Is, is there any mention, I guess, in the commentaries or anywhere else about how? you know, how locked in stone these realms are because with, you know, the changeable nature of reality, I would imagine that over the eons uh, and cycles that some of the realm dynamics might change or, I don't know, separation or maybe even, I don't know if a, a new realm or would be added or, you know, removed. What do the, the texts say, any other sources say about the veritability of the, the change as far as the cosmology goes? Well, other than at the beginning and end of a universe, you know, these cycles that we talked about, that the realms as taken as a whole are pretty stable. They don't really change much. Uh, we, uh, we do have for the Tawatinksa realm, we do have a bit of, of history for it, you know, that there was some movement there. And that's the, the realm at the top of Mount Sinaru. So it's still fairly it's the peak of the earthly existence but it's still pretty low in the, the whole scheme um, because there was a change of management you know there, there were first of the asuras lived there and then uh, Saka or Inda and his 33 companions appeared in that realm and overthrew the asuras and, and tossed them down the bottom of the mountain and the, the asuras have been trying to get back ever since so there is a you know we do have a, a bit of sort of dynamic history applied to that realm but otherwise no 
that they're 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 going to see those being pretty. I mean, the personnel changes. The Dewas are not immortal; they they die, and then they're re, another one arises. But the realm as a whole doesn't really change during the cycle of existence. We'll switch now to the access, and a lot of the questions I have were kind of more based on. I don't know, maybe literal interpretations of some of this. So I don't know how much is going to apply, but we do have accounts from like Deepama and, you know, Anagarka um, Menender, Menendadri. I can't, <laughs> maybe you can help me with the pronunciation, how he specifically taught Deepama and others how to access these realms and vision. We have a lay teacher like Joseph Goldstein being there and hearing accounts of when he would task them, I guess, with uh, visiting these realms in vision, I guess, and, and then reporting back on what they see. So given this, what's your stance on this? I guess we can only speak to teaching the la- laity, maybe more advanced practitioners about doing this, and then how this might medi- uh, differ from if this is involved in the monastic community. Uh, and can, could instructions be given on this today? You know, why or why not? How do we view all this? I mean, what's what's the way to approach this? Things like this. Well, generally, in uh, as a kind of general principle, in in um, the mainline Theravada, there's a discouragement of seeking out psychic powers because it's kind of a side trip. It's not leading directly to enlightenment. Um, there is one of the psychic powers. that There's a list in the Suyamaga of what we call the binyas or psychic powers. One of them is um, that can be developed you know, through mastery of jhana is always the route into these things. It's um, called the dibachaku, the divine eye, which allows one to perceive the other realms. There's, there seems to be a general rule in the, in the cosmology that beings who exist on a higher level are invisible to beings on a lower level normally because they're, it's said that their bodies are more subtle. So one, one way some people understand this is in terms of like a frequency and they're existing on a, on a, they might be in the same space as us. There might be a dewa immediately present, the earth earthbound dewa, but we wouldn't know it if we don't have the dibachaku open. And there's also some discussion of you know if it's part if you if someone is has a partially developed dibachaku, they don't have a mastery of it, but they begin it's the first beginnings. They won't see the dewa as a form, but as a glowing ball of light which is kind of interesting because we get a lot of accounts and stories around the world of people seeing glowing orbs. And then you know, with, with greater mastery, the, the form is solidified and, and one can interact. This is a really important point. I feel that this can be a sidetrack. I mean, we look at David Data, right? Trying to um, steal followers and just develop psychic powers for gain. And so it's, it's pretty clear, right? That this is, 
meant in service to the final goal, not to be a, a distraction. If it's developed, be a, a complement, right? And so the what I'm thinking of the Itipada Vivanga Sutta and how the Buddha there encourages to develop these. However, I would say that might be more in a monastic context. So I could imagine that, yes, these can be misused, but I could also imagine that they could be of benefit, too, in, in various ways. And in this context, there's also another, another thing I'd like to add is from uh, the Zen tradition. Dogen, very famous medieval Zen master, in his uh, uh, Rivers and Mountains Sutra, which is a very fascinating text, he uh, he puts the whole difference between the different realms down to perception. That it's just the way we perceive things determines whether we're a dewa or a human or a hell being. He gives the example of, of a river. In the human level, we see a flowing river of water. A hell being sees it as molten lava. And a naga sees it as a kingdom of crystal palaces. Whatever the underlying actual reality is, is kind of a moot point. Which is, is fascinating. That opens up to perception itself. How should it be, I guess, talked about, and investigated and developed or seen through? Because it seems like perception interweaves itself into through almost everything, you know, or, or in, in through practice and things. And it's a very subtle and profound phenomena. You've given talks on perception before, but what makes sense in, in relevance to this conversation? Yeah, I think it's it's very important to for practice to gain some intuitive understanding of, of, of perception. You know, if so if probably for most people in the world haven't really thought about it or investigated it, they suffer from naive realism. They think that what they perceive is what actually is. Uh, whereas our our perception is actually a very sophisticated filtering system. And, and what we actually experience, we don't experience the outer world at all, only indirectly. We get signals and limited bandwidth, a limited range of signals from uh, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body. and the quality of sanya or perception takes these signals and constructs a simulation of the world, a mentally constructed simulation that we actually live in. Uh, we never, we we can never experience the outer world directly. So, what the outer world actually is is kind of a moot point. This is where the Buddha says, for example, when I talk about uh, loka, which is a where it means either world or universe is kind of a broad term. Says when I speak about loka, I mean this fathom long body. Or in another parallel text, he says when I say loka, I mean these six senses, because that's all we really have, and our perception is uh, it's sophisticated and it's you know it's powerful. But it's not completely accurate. We can misperceive things because it's trying its best to make a construction. 
like the mistaking um, a rope or a stick for a snake, of course. Yes. And even even yeah. though within our own body, you know, um, perceiving um, things within the own, our own body, I, I'd imagine mm-hmm. is is subject to various different levels and interpretations and understandings. Are there accounts of people using the divine eye to go back and investigate some of the occurrences in the suttas that might there might be gaps or questions or things left undone? Also, it makes me wonder how, you know, the the next Buddha is prophesied to be Maitreya. And if anyone has, if there's accounts of, you know, how that was determined, or if if anyone has reported on his whereabouts now, or, or, or um, and I'm thinking also of Anuruddha, the foremost of the divine eye as well. Well, we, in the Thai forest tradition, we have stories of some of the, um, the great Ajans like Ajahn Mun, who reports encounters with various beings in, in different realms. In the uh, in in the old literature, in the in the in the Jataka stories, there are accounts of some human beings actually traveling to the Dewa realms in, in the body. Very interesting account of, of King Nimi, who was a Decided the gods decided that this king is so virtuous, we're going to reward him with a stay in, in heaven with us. And they sent Matali the charioteer to get him. He got in the chariot with Matali and they headed out. And on the way, Matali gave him a tour before they're going up to heaven, he gave him a tour of the hell realms, which ends up being the bulk of the Jatakas. This, this is where we get most of our gruesome descriptions of the hell tortures, is from these this and another similar Jataka. Then uh, Saka is concerned because he's taking so long to get there. He says, where is Madeli? Does he not know that lives of humans are short? And he sends a message somehow to Madeli to hurry up and get up to heaven. And he goes there and he he spends a few months in heaven and he goes back to earth. And from his perception, he's been gone for less than a year, but on earth, Five generations have gone by. You know, make that make of that what you will. But there's certainly, you know, there are kind of this fluidity of time. So there are some uh, some accounts in the in the old literature of people visiting the, these other realms, and we do have some more modern accounts of of various masters and ajans having visions or some way of encountering beings from these realms. Also, I think sometimes people um, can experience these realms in dreams, which may be either uh, actual psychic connection to that realm or it could be a memory of having once been there. This is all very fascinating, and I remember a talk you gave on dreams too. And I, I like the the saying, "Wind." Some of them are wind in the belly too. I hadn't heard that. Well, Ajahn, thanks so much for doing this. There's been a list of people that I wanted to talk to. If I could talk to anyone, I'm, I'm very grateful to have spent this time and appreciate the the vast amount of knowledge and, and work you've done on this subject and just all the benefit you bring through all your other Dhamma talks. And I, hopefully one day I'll make it to, and visit Arrow River. Let you get back to your day. Thanks again. <laughs>